Texas Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, big money for flying taxis and why Twitter won't be getting an edit button. But first, Trump versus Apple. So early last December, a member of the Royal Saudi Air Force was training at the U.S. Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida, when he opened fire, killing three people and injuring eight others. He was then shot dead by local police. One big question over this incident, of course, is if the terrorist acted alone or if he had help. And to determine that, the FBI and Justice Department really want to get into the shooter's iPhone. Trouble is, the iPhone is locked, and Apple has intentionally not created back doors to open iPhones up. The result has been an escalating war of words between the White House and Cupertino. From the White House's perspective, this is about national security and protecting American lives, the sort of thing that is inherently superior to any tech company's internal policies. From Apple's point of view, it already handed over a trove of information from the shooter's iCloud account, data that Apple stores on its own servers, and were to create a backdoor, all sorts of other, perhaps more unsavory actors could possibly use those same keys for nefarious purposes. This is, in short, both a philosophical and pragmatic battle between two of America's most powerful institutions, and one that could wind up in the courts. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with New York Times tech reporter Jack Nickus. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by the New York Times' Jack Nickus. So, Jack, let's start here. Apple's primary argument is that if they create a backdoor into iPhones, it could possibly be exploited by bad actors, uh, foreign governments, etc. Is Apple right about that? Is, is the argument it's making a legitimate one? It's a certainly good question. It's actually at the heart of this entire debate, whether or not creating a backdoor would truly undermine the security of every iPhone out there, which uh, Apple has argued for years. The Justice Department certainly feels that that is not the case. Basically, their argument is, hey, listen, you can do whatever you need to do. Just give us the data. We don't need, you don't need to hand us over the back door or anything like that. We'll send you the phones. You just send us back the data. But Apple says it's not that simple. Just creating the back door itself would undermine the security because it would mean that, A, that solution now exists and could potentially leak out of Apple. And B, it also means that other governments would potentially be emboldened to require the same thing of Apple. Maybe the Chinese government, where obviously the court system there is heavily influenced by the government, could say, hey, Apple, we need you to open up this phone because we know you now can do it. It certainly is a seemingly valid argument, whether it holds up against the U.S. Constitution and the desire for security and, and to get into terrorist phones, et cetera, is another question. Am I wrong in thinking every now and then we see stories or hear about how third parties, not Apple, but third party companies have managed to get into iPhones. How have they been able to do it? And is it simply that they sometimes can and sometimes can't? Because obviously in this case, the government justice is saying, we can't get into the Pensacola shooter's phone. We've tried. We can't. Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of this particular case is the kind of dirty secret inside of Cupertino lately is that police already exploit software flaws in iPhones to crack into encrypted iPhones. That happens pretty regularly. It is not always something that police can do. There's a variety of factors that depend on whether or not you can break into an iPhone, including the operating system, the hardware, and what is particularly important is the length of the passcode. But absolutely, this, these tools do exist. They're used quite frequently. And essentially what 
the tools do is they don't break the encryption per se. They actually guess the password. And so to do that, they exploit flaws in the iPhone software to remove the limit of 10 password attempts. Correct. Absolutely. And, and once you remove that limit, they essentially then use software to just repeat in an automated fashion thousands and thousands of passcode until one works. Well, Jack, if that's the case, why hasn't the FBI just done that with the Pensacola shooter's phone? It's a really key question. And, and you know, some of my sources around Cupertino are, are saying there is some frustration there that uh, maybe the FBI hasn't tried long enough. It should be said, though, that this doesn't always work. Um, as I mentioned, there are a number of factors. The FBI is not saying why in this case it's not working, but one explanation could be that the suspect had a long passcode. For instance, if the passcode is four numbers, it would take at most 13 minutes to try all the combinations, which includes the built-in delay that iPhones have between passcode attempts. If the passcode is 10 digits long, it would take 25 years to try all the combinations. Interesting. So let's talk on the legal side of this. So justice is basically saying they're going to fight Apple on this. Apple is saying we will fight back. From the Trump administration perspective, what is the actual strategy here? What is the case law that they're going to use to argue that Apple needs to create these backdoor keys? I don't know the exact case law here of of how they're going to legally approach this. I mean, I think actually what is important to note is we haven't entered the legal sphere yet. This has really just been a war of words. And the Justice Department has reason to be careful about doing that because they don't want to choose a bad test case, which could set bad legal precedent against them. They really want to choose their spot wisely here so they can win and potentially set good precedent that would make it more difficult for Apple to fight back in the future. President Trump uh, tweeted that he has been helping Apple on trade and basically says, you know, you guys are being ungrateful. Can you unpack that a little bit? How does Trump believe he has helped Apple on trade, given the trade war we're in with China, phase one deal or no phase one deal? Basically, there have been a number of companies that have been significantly affected by uh, the tariffs that the Trump administration has put in place on products coming from China. Apple has been one of the companies that relatively has been least affected because they've had a lot of their products exempted from those tariffs. And remember, Apple is arguably one of the largest American manufacturers that use Chinese manufacturing. And so basically, you know, there is a political calculation. The president has proven to use leverage in different areas to get his way. And that may be something Tim Cook is thinking about here is, you know, we've got potential tariffs on the line and we've got a request from the same administration to open up these iPhones. And so having to balance those priorities is going to be a real question. I know that my conversations with folks around Cupertino is that Apple sees the encryption debate as existential for its company and almost certainly will not back down unless it loses in court. Jack Nickus of the New York Times, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a California company called Joby Aviation, which announced that it's raised $590 million in new investment led by Toyota. Why it matters is that Joby's entire business is making flying taxis, something of a cross between a helicopter and a small plane. And this is by far the largest ever deal for one of these companies. In fact, it's more than the entire industry has ever raised in aggregate. Axios Transportation reporter Joanne Muller tells me, quote, at some point you simply can't put more cars on 
on the planet because cities are too congested or because climate regulations won't allow it. Bill Ford's been talking about this risk for decades. As automakers like Toyota experiment with new forms of mobility, they might as well look to the skies. And finally, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey yesterday poured freezing cold water on the idea of an edit button for tweets, telling The Verge that while the original failure to have an edit button was related to how Twitter used text messaging, which can't be post-edited, the current thinking is that an edit button would cause too many problems for those who retweet, possibly changing the meaning of what they amplify. Yes, Twitter could implement a delay, you know, 15, 30 seconds for tweeters to identify and fix mistakes, but Dorsey feels that would eliminate the service's twitchy real-time feel. So, no edit button. Oh, and Dorsey also revealed that Twitter's bird mascot is named Larry because fellow co-founder Biz Stone grew up in Boston and Larry Bird was the most famous bird he knew. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Fig Newton Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.